This is Dean Mathis, the Director of Capital Ministries, Michigan. Today we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 22. And uh, I've entitled these thoughts, A Clear Conscience. It's going to be based upon something we encounter in verse 14 of this chapter. But a clear conscience is a very important facet of our connection with God. One of the things that keeps people away from God and away from spiritual things or even thinking about them is our lives without Christ are typified by not having a clear conscience. We never perform perfectly. We always fall short. We fall short of our own expectations. We fall short of others. And we're certainly aware of the fact that in our lack of moral strength in and of our own selves, we fall short of God's perfection for the way he would have us live our lives. We all would like to be better human beings than we are. We would all like to be more kind, more gracious, more courageous, whatever it is we think we lack. And we're all acutely aware of the fact that we have at times in the past made some pretty big mistakes. We've committed some sins of which if we have any degree of decency at all, we're ashamed. But Jesus comes to cleanse us of all that. He comes to remove that barrier between us and God and in the process to remove the barrier between us and ourselves to give us a clear conscience, to give us a sense of being restored to his fellowship and to God's complete and total love because he has come and paid the price for our sin, paid the price for our foolishness. So let's pick it up in verse 11 about how this is explained as this writer is continuing this discussion of the superiority of Jesus Christ and the system of grace to the one that preceded it, which is the Mosaic law. And the age of grace begins with the death of Jesus on the cross. And we'll explain in just a little bit, or we'll talk about a little bit, how the Old Testament believer was redeemed. He was redeemed by the fact that the Messiah was going to come. We are redeemed by the fact that the Messiah has come and paid the price for our sins. Let's pick it up in verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. That's verses 11 and 12. So we have the superiority in these verses of the Messiah's sacrifice. The soon-to-be-done-away-with temple, which was down the road from where these recipients of this letter lived, they lived in Judea, which is south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was just north of there for a few miles, was the temple. The ministers of the temple, the priest and the high priest, worked in that human building, which at that time was a rather spectacular monument to human engineering, and it was beautiful. It was decorated with gold, and it was a beautiful structure. In fact, the Pharisees said, you've never seen beauty until you've seen the temple of Herod. It was just a tremendously beautiful uh, structure, but it was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. But these people 
who are the recipients of this letter are being tempted to go back to that system in order to get some persecution off of their backs for a period of time. And he is saying they don't need to do that because Jesus, when he entered his work as our eternal high priest, when he ascended to heaven, he went into the real tabernacle, the one in heaven that is glorious beyond words, the real center of divine worship. And there he brought a better sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and goats. The bulls, of course, were the sacrifices for the high priest's sins so that he could enter the Holy of Holies. And the goats were for the sins of the ordinary people, which he would then bring in subsequent to his coming in and making atonement for his own sins. And by atonement, I mean just the, it's the word covering. The blood of all of those animal sacrifices couldn't remove sin. It could only cover it over until Christ came and removed sin by the death of his sinless humanity on behalf of all human beings. So the tabernacle in which Jesus carried out his ministry was superior to anything mankind had ever built in the entire expanse of the Jewish law and the, and the, and the tabernacle slash temple worship system of the Old Testament. Verse 13, it talks about the results of the Messiah's sacrifice. We pick it up in verse 13. It'll be on through the rest of the verses that we'll be looking at. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ or the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of animals and then other things, which he adds here, the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who've been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. What he's talking about there are the different kinds of sacrifices that went on in the temple to remove various kinds of religious trespasses and who were for the ceremonial cleansing of the people to remind them the shedding of blood because of the inability of human beings to live a perfect life was illustrating something that's that in the future, God would provide a perfect way for sin to be removed. But in verse 14, he's talking about the fact that that perfect way has come because Jesus Christ came as a human being. He had a mother. God was his father through the miracle of the virgin conception, virgin birth. And Jesus was born, but he was truly human. And yet he was always divine. And therefore he did what none of us was ever able to do, which is to live a sinless life. And then when he died on the cross, his death, a complete miscarriage of justice, a violent rejection of the Jewish people of his messiahship, carried out by a pagan government, the Roman government, symbolized the rejection of man, of God as God. But in the death of Jesus and in the resurrection of Jesus, it shows the triumph of the love of God over the sin of man and offering man a way to be redeemed if he will just receive the forgiveness of his sins through faith in Jesus Christ. If he will just reach out and take from God the forgiveness that God offers through believing in Jesus. If he is convinced that it is true that Jesus died for his sins and he is convinced that it's true that if he asks God to forgive his sins on the basis of that death of Jesus, 
then that person will be given eternal life. And those of you who have experienced that know what I'm talking about. And it does remove guilt because we realize that our sins are forgiven. Now, this doesn't mean that we go out then and violate that grace by trying to live wicked lives after we've been saved. No, it's just the opposite thing happens. The Spirit of God enters our lives and we have a desire to do the things that are modeled by Jesus and given in the New Testament as means by which believers are to live the kind of a life that is a blessing to other people, that honors God, and is also a better way to live than anything that's ever been offered to mankind. And so, because the blood of Jesus Christ removes our sin and cleanses our conscience, we then are willing to move toward serving a living God. Verse 15, for this reason, he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. We now have a new agreement so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Now, in this section, he's using an illustration out of our everyday lives. The covenant here is what we would talk about in the form of a last will and testament. My wife and I each have a will made out. And my mom and my dad had a will made out. For a number of years, I worked through our denomination to encourage people to include in their wills whatever charitable giving they would like to have, because not only do we give when we're alive, when we die, we give away everything, because it all is going to go somewhere, because we're not going to be here any longer to spend it. But a will doesn't go into effect until the testator of that will dies. And the same thing is true here. Until Jesus died, the will, the new will, was not in force. But Jesus has died, so the will now is in force. And what did Jesus give us? He gives us, through his death, eternal life. And he's able to give us eternal life through his death because he then subsequently was resurrected from the dead. Therefore, he can deliver on all of those promises. The first covenant was sealed with the, with the blood of animals. The second covenant is sealed with the blood of the Savior himself. We pick it up in verse 18. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. When when Moses set up the earthly tabernacle and the proper way to worship God during the Old Testament era, he sprinkled the blood of bulls and goats all over it and all the different articles of things, symbolizing that the blood of sacrifice is what sanctifies or set aside these various articles that were serve as the shelter of and as the tools by which men went about worshiping God. Verse 19, for when the very commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. 
And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things were cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so he said all of this was a sacred, symbolic way of telling the people that because the wages of sin is death, the death of something that's innocent is what symbolizes the fact that God's forgiveness comes, but it's going to come at a price, at a consequence. And it was looking forward to the completed sacrifice. When all of that was set up, that was not altogether made clear. It's just that the people of God at the point where Moses set up the tabernacle and the worship had just been liberated from slavery in Egypt. And God has them on a journey. It's a journey that started back with their patriarchal fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now it's moving forward through that group of people because they had been called out to follow the true God to illustrate something to all of the people of the world. And God said, I'm going to unfold before you blessings. First of all, in this temporal life, if you will be obedient to me, But I'm also going to demonstrate that when you're disobedient to me, I do not forsake you and I still continue to work with you and to continually bring you back to myself. And that's exactly what happened in the Old Testament era. Moses spelled out exactly how that would happen in some of the prophecies that he gave in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so the Old Testament believer looked forward to the fact that in the centuries ahead, God would be with them. They would worship God. God gave commandments of how they were to behave. God also gave a way for them to make atonement when they misbehaved, when they sinned. And most of that required an animal sacrifice of some kind. Some of it required uh, washing with water and things of that nature. But that's why he says in verse 22, One may almost say that all things were cleansed with blood. Some things were cleansed with washings and things of that nature. But forgiveness came because there was some kind of animal sacrifice made, which symbolized the fact that our sins ultimately cause death. Our sins are the things that cause us to die. And our sin is what brings about death in this world. It is the real reason why all of us die physically. When Adam and Eve sinned against God in the Garden of Eden by rejecting his command to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they basically set us on a course of physical death. And yet we were made in the image of God. We have an eternal spirit. We have an eternal soul. So God made it clear to them from the get-go that the way they came back to him was by worshiping him correctly, by making a sacrifice of an animal, and by obeying the moral laws that, first of all, he has written on our hearts, and then later he wrote them on the tables of stone and spelled them out when he fleshed out a whole lot of his revelation and his plan and the establishment of the nation of Israel. And even when they rebelled and wandered off, they had the prophets who would come under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and speak to them about the present, but they would also speak to them about the future of how God was going to come 
And many of those prophecies were fulfilled in the person of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is that Jesus now has come. He has fulfilled prophecies about redemption that the Old Testament clearly taught. And because that has happened, we can now enter into a new covenant. The testator has died. The Messiah died for our sins. Therefore, there is a way for our sins to be forgiven because his blood has been carried into the heavenly sanctuary. It is living and therefore it is placed on the heavenly altar and our sins are thereby forgiven. And to know that my sins are forgiven gives me a clear conscience. I can know that it's okay for me to go and talk to God because God doesn't see my sin. He sees the perfect life of Christ. He sees me in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that God is naive and is not, is not aware of the fact of what I am. He's fully conscious of who, of what I am, but he treats me as though I am totally forgiven. I am totally redeemed. That's what agape love is all about. And that's what redemption is all about. There is no power on earth that can do what Christ has done. He has provided us with these, the results of his sacrifice, purification, and then he has ratified the new covenant. He has put the new will into effect. The will has been written. The will has been executed. And now the will is in full function. By faith in Christ, I can have eternal life and I can have forgiveness of my sins. That, my friends, is really good news. May God richly bless you.